Brad Wilcox wears a lot of hats. He's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, where he directs the National Marriage Project. He's a senior fellow and co-founder of the Institute for Family Studies. At the American Enterprise Institute, he directs the Home Economics Project, which looks at the economic aspects of family structure. And he's a fellow at the Institute for Studies in Religion at Baylor, where he considers the religious lens on family policy. He's also the author of four books and hundreds of articles. And although he doesn't say it in this interview, Brad's named publicly in other contexts that he was raised by a single mother, which has given him a profound personal experience of the importance of marriage and family life. On several occasions, I've met some of Brad's kids, and you know how meeting someone's children is like a window to the parent's soul? Well, Brad's children are salt of the earth, and that says something about the voice of their scholar father. And since 2017, Eugene Scott has been editor of The Fix and a columnist at The Washington Post. And he is all over the talk shows these days. Eugene thinks very carefully about the politics of identity and how that shifted at least some in the Trump era. If you listen to NPR, I bet you've heard him. And if you channel surf, you'll know that Eugene is a regular on CNN Politics, MSNBC, and CBS. He holds a master's from Harvard Kennedy School, where he's been active with the Shorenstein Center on the media, politics, and public policy. And he spent nine years covering higher ed, business, and politics at the Arizona Republic, in addition to working at Time Magazine, the Kansas City Star, and the Charlotte Observer. When in 2015, the Moynihan Report turned 50, sociologists noted that in the early 1960s, 2 to 3% of white children were born outside of wedlock, and 20% of black children Today, three-quarters of all black births, half of all Latino births, and three-tenths of white births are now to single mothers. In a half century, the numbers have become almost incredible, and we only partially understand the impact. Brad and Eugene break down some of the leading trends around marriage today, from how it impacts mobility to socioeconomic and class differences, to the rising generation's age delay, to gender impact, to the relevance of entertainment and technology. I hope this fascinating, wide-ranging conversation helps all of us to reflect on the enduring but also changing impact of marriage in American life. Awesome, Brad. Great having you here today. Thanks, Eugene. Good to be with you. It has been a few couple of weeks of great interest in terms of political conversation, which I think it's probably an evergreen statement in this current political climate. And I'm always wondering what people studying these topics are thinking about in terms of their specific areas of discipline. And so are there any topics that have dominated the news in the last few weeks that have consumed your work and your thoughts in the areas of marriage and family? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I don't think that there's been something kind of immediately on the marriage and family front that has been related to sort of the, the news of the day, so to speak. I think it is probably worth thinking about, though, the ways in which sort of the disruptive arrival of Donald Trump in 2016 onto the well, the political scene and, and then the presidency, I think, is one indication of the way in which, at least for some important share of Americans, there was a sense of, of outrage, concern, and a sense that they had not been well served by the sort of political leaders coming into 2016. So I think, 
he's obviously a very problematic political figure in our day, but I think we also kind of can look at him as kind of a sign of an underlying crisis, a kind of a sign of sort of malpractice on the part of many of our political leadership class. So in just sort of thinking about Trump as a phenomenon, I think my own sort of sense is that I've been thinking a lot about the working class in the last couple of years, that his appeal among white working class voters is partly driven by you know, family instability, the breakdown of civil society, as well as shifts in work and the economy, and a sense, too, that their concerns had been kind of ignored or not considered to be very important. So that's one point of connection to sort of the news of the day, roughly speaking. Your comments on political malpractice were noteworthy to me, in part because one of the arguments Trump built his campaign on was that Democrats had failed much of America, specifically communities of color and inner cities. But you would know this better than I, studying these challenges, many white working class voters have some of the same challenges that people of color in inner cities have. And we notice that the president attacks Democrats who are in office in Baltimore, sure. but not really the Republican West. legislatures yeah. and governors in Alabama and Mississippi and West Virginia, right. which have poverty rates comparable, if not sure. surpassing to those in Baltimore. inner cities. Sure. So can you talk a bit about the political malpractice on the right that maybe some of these white working class voters probably felt? Yeah, so I think on the right, the challenge has been that the Republican Party has been driven to an important extent by the donor class, you know, by folks who, who I think sincerely believe that kind of the free market is the way to go, that free trade is the way to go, that lower taxes is the way to go, that less regulation is the way to go. And I think lost sight of the fact that when it comes to the economy and it comes to sort of the health of communities, when it comes to the health of families across the United States, that if people are not gainfully employed in full-time work, you're much more likely to see communities breaking down, families breaking down. And as your comments just suggested, we've seen this play out for African-Americans in important ways since the 1970s, but really since the 1980s and even more so in the 2000s, this has kind of been playing out among white working class Americans as well. And one area obviously is sort of the impact of free trade agreements with China and other countries that ended up basically gutting you know, our economy of, you know, the economists have, you know, debates, but probably at least around a million jobs, mm -hmm. working class jobs or mm -hmm. decent paying good jobs. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, would be affecting actually both, you know, white and, and mm -hmm. black workers and Hispanic workers and mm -hmm. other workers in those sectors. And so I think that there was a sense that often more intuitive that the political class, in this case, on the Republican side, had not been really attentive to their fundamental economic well-being. And so on the trade issues, obviously, and on the immigration issues, there was a sense that the Republican Party and the political class more generally was not attentive to the welfare of ordinary workers and ordinary manufacturing jobs. Brad, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the landscape? What do the numbers look like when you compare college-educated Americans when it comes to marriage versus non-college-educated Americans and and some of the different demographic sort of breakdown by, by race as well, which is such a hot topic right now. 
Sure. I think one thing that's important to recognize, which is often, I think, overlooked, is that if you were to turn the clock back to the Halicon era in the 50s, of course, I'm being sarcastic here, but seriously, if you you kind of look back at our nation's history about 50 or 60 years ago, what you would see is there were not big differences by class in terms of the rich, the middle class, and the poor. There were not differences really by race, either by black and white, for instance, when it came to families. The vast majority of Americans, be they black or white, rich, middle class, or poor, got married, stayed married. The vast majority of kids across those groups were raised in intact married families. So something happened in the in the 1960s and beyond that dramatically changed the contours of American family life. And so we've seen since then, you know, Americans across the board are less likely to get married. They're less likely to stay married. But as things have kind of worked their way out, what's happened is that this retreat from marriage, as said, African-Americans, working class and poor Americans, including, of course, white working class and poor Americans, particularly hard. And so today, a clear majority of college-educated adults are married and will be stably married. And a minority of adults who are more in that working class or those poor brackets are going to be, you know, stably married across the course of their lifetime. So that's sort of one indication of the way in which we see this playing out by class. And then in terms of race, we see that it's still the case that the majority of African-Americans will marry at some point, but they're much less likely to get married than whites, and they're much more likely to experience family instability, including divorce. But it's also important to note both on kind of the class front and the racial front that in the last few years, things have gotten a little bit better. So, for instance, the share of African-American kids being raised or born outside of wedlock has gone from being above 70% to moving below 70%. And the share of black kids who are living in two-parent married families has ticked upwards as well in, in recent years. So it's important just to acknowledge, too, that these trends don't necessarily always move in one, you know, one direction. And I think actually we're going to see in, in the next couple of years a modest increase in the share of kids, including African-American kids, who are being raised in intact married households. It's also interesting examining the motivations behind these trends. And so in these more socially conservative spaces, I've moved in and I report on the thought is that people enter marriage because it is a religious conviction or value connected to their faith or morals. And I think at times it's easy to assume that that is true for most or many people. Can you talk a bit about the marriage rates being high among affluent people and what the main motivations of that are? I imagine on some level it's about faith and religion for some, but not always. Yeah, no, I do think having a decent job is certainly a major consideration, particularly for a guy. Pew has pretty good data on this. Even today in, you know, in, in the 21st century, when women are thinking about kind of marrying, they're looking especially for a guy who has a decent paying and a stable job. And so that's one reason why we see rates of marriage being higher among more educated and affluent Americans. And this speaks to William Julius Wilson's work on male marriageability. So that, again, when men have decent jobs across the board, they're more likely to be getting married and also staying married as well. I think another part of this picture is that 
more educated, more affluent Americans are also more likely to be able to buy a house, have a 401k plan. I think it's not necessarily a kind of a conscious decision on their mm-hmm. part, but there's kind of an implicit recognition mm-hmm. that all this goes a lot more smoothly for themselves financially. And otherwise, if they are to marry and to remain to remain married. We've also seen divorce actually come down pretty dramatically since the 1980s when it peaked in the wake of the divorce revolution. So I think there are a variety of sort of educational and economic factors that help to explain why more educated and more affluent Americans are more likely to marry in the first place and more likely to stay married in the second place. And what I've said now is sort of would be kind of the standard sociological, I think, story about what's happening. I also want to add that just kind of a cultural point, and that is that I think there is a kind of a recognition at some level that there is a success sequence to life, that it's about education, work, marriage, in that order before having kids. And that whether you're you know, conservative or liberal, religious or secular, in most well-educated communities, the expectation, the part of the parents, the teachers, and the teenagers is that you sequence things in this order. And so if you, for instance, have a a baby as a teenager, what we see in the data is that there's a lot more shame for that in more educated communities than there is in working class and poor communities. So the point I would make is that, you know, there's there's a cultural piece to this that I think can get lost in some of our our debates about our conversations about family structure and class in America. I saw that you say in writing elsewhere that there are economic benefits to being married. Certainly, right. you know, there's this $18,000 bump you get if, mm-hmm. you're, if you're a male in your 40s and you're married. It's, it's $18,000 better, apparently, mm-hmm. you, you say. I'm curious how you get there. So, but also, right, sure. you know, to Eugene's point, like, how is that reflected or balanced by religious commitment or religious practice? I mean, I'd be curious to understand, you know, I understand the black community today or recently, you know, 58% of, of kids were growing up in a father-absent household. In the Latino community, 32% of kids were growing up in a father-absent household. And in the white community, it's lower. It's 21%. But, you know, like in these marriages, what role, if any, do you see religion playing as a buttress? So, you know, one of the questions that I asked with my colleague, Nick Wolfinger at the University of Utah is, you know, this question on the one hand, we see that African-Americans are the most religious group in the United States in terms of breaking things up by race and ethnicity. And at the same time, they experience the most family instability. Sort of how do we make sense of those two sort of social facts? And so as Nick and I looked at the data in, in our book, Soulmates, our basic conclusion is that it is the case that for African-Americans and for Latinos, as for whites, those who are more religious are relatively speaking in their different groups, more likely to get married. They're more likely to have their kids in marriage. They're more likely to be happily married. There's a kind of a 10 percentage point boost associated for African-Americans, for instance, with attending church with their spouse compared to those African-Americans who don't attend church with their spouse or with their partner. So it kind of works like we expected it would in general, but there are these other factors outside the the frame, the religious frame, if you will, to some extent, things like poverty, things like education, things like greater instability in, in men's work, obviously the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow that help to account for the fact that there's more family instability among African-Americans than there is for whites. And that's, so we're basically arguing that religion in many respects operates across racial lines to sort of strengthen marriage. But there are other factors besides religion that help to account for distinctively high patterns of family instability among African-Americans. 
We've seen a, a delay in millennials choosing to enter marriage compared to previous generations. There are lots of assumptions people have about that that I think data supports, such as the economic and financial barriers of entering what people have conceived as necessary to have a healthy marriage, whether true or not, in terms of home ownership and low debt and a well-paying job. And these are things that during the Great Recession were just really impossible for a lot of young Americans. What are you seeing as some other factors that are making younger Americans say that marriage is not something I want right now, if at all? Yeah, I think besides the economic factors that you touched upon, I think it's also the case that there is kind of a broader culture of caution. And that is exemplified in things like the fact that younger adults today tend to get their licenses later on. They tend to have less sex and wait more to have sex than was true, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And there's also obviously been this whole discussion about kind of helicopter parenting and sort of the culture of fragility on college campuses that John Haidt has been talking about. So I think part of this is just kind of a greater caution among younger adults today than was the case for earlier generations of 20-somethings. But I also think, too, that we don't really know kind of what's exactly the sort of the story here. But I do think there's something about, you know, the role of screen culture, the role of, you know, smartphones, tablets, gaming devices, pornography. Our electronic entertainments have become a lot more compelling and become, I think, pretty powerful in grabbing our time and our attention, our hearts and minds. And so what that means practically is that people are spending less time socializing to some extent. They're dating less. They're having less sex. And I think it also is affecting kind of their the speed with which they move on towards marriage as well. So again, this is kind of, this is a more speculative area for all of us. But I think we also have seen, for instance, in 2018, that our fertility rate hit its record low in American history. And we, and we think that's going to come even, you know, go lower in 2019. So something, and this is striking because normally when, you know, the economy kicks back into gear as it did in, in around 2014 in a bigger way, and you would see fertility coming back up. We've not seen that. It's just continued to kind of fall. But that would make sense if the people examining the scope of things are just more cautious, as you talked about earlier, right? Yeah, no, certainly. I think so. I think that's certainly part of this part of the story. But I think it's also a case, too, that something has changed beyond just these sort of economic factors and even the culture of caution from, you know, that people may have gotten in part from their parents and, and schools and other. I think it's there's something about the way in which, you know, electronic devices and entertainments have become so much more compelling and so much more a part of our, our daily lives. I think is changing the contours of marriage and, and childbearing in ways that are linked to both delays in marriage and to less fertility. That's my intuition. On that front, Brad, I've, I mean, I've heard you talk before about, you know, Newt Gingrich and Barack Obama being different for, for different cultural reasons. Are there also other, what's that about? And also, are there other cultural icons that you sort of see tech holding up as a kind of longing that either young women or young men have for what they want in their future someday? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things, too, and again, I think in the 60s and 70s and 80s, I think kind of Americans across the board were affected by the family revolution that was kind of playing out, increases in divorce, single parenthood, the whole you know, the whole batch of, of things that were happening in this period. So you saw, you know, in this era, for instance, someone like Newt Gingrich 
going through multiple marriages and divorces you know, around this general time frame. But what I'm arguing is that sort of since then, well-educated Americans have kind of pulled back from the excesses of the family revolution have kind of come to a new appreciation for the, the value of stable marriage for themselves and for their children. And we have seen divorce declines across the board, but especially among college-educated Americans. And so the example that I often would give is sort of comparing, you know, Newt Gingrich as sort of a, an earlier political luminary to Barack Obama, who was, a, you know, who was from a different generation than was Newt Gingrich, just to sort of illustrate how or even you could talk about Paul Ryan, I mean, the same kind of story, right? You can't imagine, at least I can't imagine, Paul Ryan or Barack Obama, for all their political differences, approaching marriage and family life the way in which, you know, Newt Gingrich did or the way in which Donald Trump has. That there is, I think, a, there's been a kind of a learning curve above and beyond sort of your political affiliation among younger adults who are well-educated. And I think they're more intentional for a variety of reasons about living out a more stable family life. What do you think some of those lessons have been? In my reporting and talking to baby boomers who've gone through divorce, a very common theme is that they want younger people to know that the problems that they thought divorce would solve, they did not solve. And divorce actually introduced new challenges in terms of financial complications and the impact it has on your children and their sense of stability in the world in general, not just in family life and factors related to that. Have you seen some of that or are there just some other issues that have led younger Americans to be less likely to end their marriages? So I think, you know, part of the story here is that when you look at the folks who are getting married today, they tend to be more educated, more affluent, or more religious. And that that last piece is often overlooked in our conversations about. So, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the academy would sort of say, well, it's marriage is more stable today because it's just more selective. The kinds of people who are getting married today are just more likely to have the characteristics that, you know, tend to, and they're also tend to be a bit older, that these things help explain why divorces come down. I think that's true. But I think it's also the case, too, that there has been a kind of a social learning, you know, that's more likely to have filtered in for different reasons among well-educated Americans. And they've kind of kind of recognized that as they're sort of planning out their lives and they're more planful than their their fellow citizens oftentimes, there's a recognition, again, that, you know, the house that they have, the 401k that they're building together as a couple, that their kids' prospects for, you know, going to the, to the best possible college, that all these things are wrapped up to some extent in their ability to maintain a stable marriage. The other thing, though, is that as... You know, we are social animals and we take a lot of cues from our friends and our family members. And so as marriage has stabilized in general, but especially among more educated Americans, you know, if you're having a real tough spell in your marriage, as most of us do who are married, but none of your friends are getting divorced, you're like, well, probably there's some way to figure this out, you know, besides heading towards divorce court. So I think there's a kind of in more brute terms or whatever, more blunt terms, there's also a social status thing, too, where I think divorce is more likely to occasion shame among well-educated Americans today than was the case in the 70s. There was actually a great piece in the New York Times in the fashion section talking about how kind of divorce 
had become more stigmatized in Park Slope and in Seattle. So obviously not, mm-hmm. not exactly bastions sure. of social conservatism, but just talking about how among the women who were being profiled in this piece, like they were much more ambivalent about divorce than was the case, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. From my perspective, my big frustration here, though, is that the sort of the value of stable marriage is kind of an inside story. Even in, in Barack Obama's White House, Josh tells a story about how when he was dating, you know, his then girlfriend, that the president kind of pulled him aside and basically told him like that marriage was the best thing that ever happened to him, mm-hmm. that he should be, you know, going ahead and getting married. And so the president was really kind of pushing a very kind of marriage-friendly message on Dubois. And yet the president spoke a lot about fatherhood in very good and compelling ways. Mm-hmm. But he did not kind of share that that message about marriage, you know, per se with with the broader public. So I think there's that's my frustration with our marriage discussion right now is that I think people are concerned about stepping on folks' toes by talking about the value of marriage in public, whether they're superintendents or politicians or, you know, business executives. Hmm. It's been several years, maybe five years since you flagged, if I recall, Raj Chetty's chart about mobility and the like. I wonder if you might describe kind of what that's about. And like, is marriage really a predictor of economic mobility? And how do the economics play into this? Because I know Eugene talks a lot when he's on the talk shows about how economics is a driver for what's happening when it comes to race, when it comes to politics. How do you see economics playing into this larger case? That's a great question. I think, you know, the debates that we have about these questions on the right and the left tend to revolve around whether you want to kind of privilege the economic perspective, you want to kind of privilege the cultural, the family story. And in terms of just the first part of your question, Raj Chetty's work suggests, you know, that when you look at kind of larger communities and when you actually look at neighborhoods, that the share of his measure is a share of two parent families in a neighborhood or a community is one of the best predictors of mobility for poor children, either in a larger community or in a or in a discrete neighborhood. And there's also been obviously a lot of focus of late on incarceration as well. And it finds I have found using his data that family structure in the neighborhood is again one of the best predictors of who ends up incarcerated, you know, heading into adulthood. And in fact, one of his reports that was featured in the New York Times recently talked about how there were two different neighborhoods in Los Angeles, so predominantly African-American, and one neighborhood had much lower rates of incarceration than the other neighborhood did. And as I kind of revisited those two neighborhoods, what I found, among other things, was that the neighborhood that less incarceration had more two-parent families in, in that African-American, primarily African-American community in Los Angeles. So the point that I want to sort of make here is I think we often lose sight of the fact that family structure is connected to more mobility for poor kids and to better outcomes for kids across a host of different outcomes. The question then, of course, is, well, what explains why there's more single-parent families, you know, in parts of rural Alabama or in West Baltimore than there are in Loudoun County, for instance, you know, near to this studio? And, you know, I think the left would sort of talk about the role of education and income as a big factor, and the right would talk about more often culture or even bad welfare policies from the 60s. You know, from my perspective, I think that, you know, all these things are implicated in the shift away from the stable two-parent family. And it's partly about jobs. It's partly about, you know, I talked about trade policy just a little while ago. That's one example of that. But it's also, too, about moving away from a culture and a civil order that would tend to prioritize the importance of 
getting married before you have kids and staying married once you have them. And obviously the best example of this is just the historical example. So the 1930s, the height of the Great Depression, tremendous economic dislocation that's roiling the entire society. But there's no big increase in family instability, in divorce or single parenthood. So it's just because in part there was a much different cultural and civic milieu. And so, again, as we think about these issues, I think we can't lose sight of the fact that if we'd like to, you know, increase family stability in places like parts of rural Alabama or West Baltimore, yes, economics is important. Yes, work is important. We also think, too, about sort of, I think, changing our culture and also having our civic institutions play a different role as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking much about, I think, the article you referenced in terms of affluent, educated individuals in places like Park Slope, Brooklyn, and Seattle having a higher view of marriage than people would expect or maybe even shaming those who choose divorce in their community. And I just have ideas. I obviously haven't looked at data, but there are two things I'm probably thinking about that could possibly make these presumably more secular individuals value this institution that many people of faith tend to think they, quite frankly, have a monopoly on. And one, if you look at life through the lens of success in multiple ways, be it academic or professional, to fail at marriage is taboo. There's a desire to win at all things and to have not won in that area as well could be shameful. Secondly, these are probably people also who have a high respect for or much engagement with psychology and studies and research. And we we know that the research supports that it's healthier for kids to grow up in two-parent homes, whether you're an evangelical Christian or an agnostic. And I would imagine that these individuals, many of who probably studied psychology themselves, have accepted that truth, regardless of whether they may have accepted the value moral arguments for marriage. Is that true? Are those fair assumptions to have? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, again, I think part of the, and again, what we're talking about is controversial, and some of mm-hmm. my, my colleagues in the academy would disagree, but I think it is the case that we that we do see papers like The Post, The New York Times, and other venues kind of reporting on studies that suggests that, you know, on average, Mm -hmm. kids who are raised in stable married families do better. And people read these stories, particularly if they're more educated, and kind of can shape their sense. They might be exposed to them in college as well. Mm -hmm. So I do think that kind of the sort of steady stream of stories that suggest that, you know, two-parent families are on average better for kids has had some impact on people's thinking about how their own family life can affect their kids. Mm -hmm. You know, this project does so much work with media, and we normally think of that as, as political journalists, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really a lot of Washington, D.C. journalists and New York journalists. But there is also this, this side of, of, you know, cultural media and Hollywood and films and the like. And I, I'm curious, Brad, if you see any positive trends, you know, there. That's a large subject. But in terms of media intake on the value of family structure, marriage, you know, two-parent families, father presence and the like. Are there encouraging trends there? Are there films you can think of that are highly digested by by people today or could be? Like, what are your favorite couple of films, if you've got any, on this subject that sort of reinforces these themes? Yeah, I don't have a kind of a ready list of, to be honest, of films that would sort of be in my, you know, speak to my interest on in the family front. But I, okay, I, we'll get them in writing. Well, we'll put them in the chat. Yeah, I'll, I'll call a call back with that list. But no, but I think, I mean, I have seen, you know, certainly some dramas that depict family life recently in pretty good ways. 
So I think to be fair, you know, including ones featuring African-American families as well. But I think you kind of move beyond sort of just the, the TV shows and some films and you kind of move more in the direction of music. I think I think the message is often less helpful and more counterproductive. So I think and I've got teenagers too, so I'm constantly kind of <laughs> hearing for better and for worse, you know, what's out there and it's often for worse. But, you know, just the message about romance and sex and, you know, all that kind of stuff and sort of how we think about and treat women, you know, there's just a lot of stuff out there that's, I think, pretty corrosive, you know. Now, I think that, of course, the more... Some people, I think, would wonder fairly whether or not it's sort of like, you know, I like dramatic films with action and, you know, but I'm not out, you know, shooting people up. So I think the question is whether or not if you're listening to music, for instance, that, you know, depicts women in a, in a more negative light or whatever, if that's really going to shape how you approach it. And I'm not saying that it always does, but I do think probably some aspects of our popular culture are not really encouraging folks to treat one another with respect and to approach relationships and parenthood and family life with, you know, you know, all due prudence. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I would imagine that culture, specifically music, at worst can communicate that marriage or other relationships should primarily be transactional. Right. Which is not a great foundation to build any type of relationship on, especially sure. marriage. But... I would like you to speak to the younger people who would say, I'm interested in marriage. I'm not interested in it at 25 like my mom was. What's wrong with that? How does this decision that I'm making for, I believe, myself have a negative impact on society and culture as a whole, if at all? Well, let me be clear. I don't think everyone should get married, you know, and I don't think everyone should get married at 25 either. I think it's going to vary a great deal with your stage in life, but also with the kinds of people that you're meeting or that you're in relationship with. So what I would say to someone who is, say, 23, you know, or even 22, who has, you know, a great boyfriend or girlfriend and is pretty serious about them, go ahead and start thinking about marriage. There's no kind of reason that you shouldn't think about that. And it's important to recognize, too, I think there's this idea of kind of seeing your 20s for some Americans is kind of like this time for for fun and for exploration. Isn't that kind of new, though? That's a fairly new idea, yeah. right? But I'm just sort of saying, I think what they don't recognize, though, is you actually look at 20-somethings who are married versus 20-somethings who are single or even cohabiting. The folks who are married in their 20s, and they, of course, they can be distinctive in important ways, tend to be happier, less depressed, mm-hmm. and, of course, they drink less. And So my point is that, I mean, judging at least by happiness, mm-hmm. you know, reports of happiness, those who are married in their 20s are clearly happier than their peers who are not married in their 20s. So at least we have to recognize, just from a descriptive level, that being married in your 20s is not an obstacle to at least happiness. You know, maybe it's to a certain kind of fun, but to being happy and less depressed, well, those who are married in their 20s. So I think kind of just recognize that if you have a good relationship with someone and you're 22 or 25 or 27, there's no reason you shouldn't think about marriage. And I think in terms of the advantage is that, at least in terms of marital happiness, and the story about divorce is a little bit different, is the folks who get married in their 20s tend to be happier in their marriages than those who wait. I think what's happening there in part is kind of there's a developmental model of marriage. They're kind of growing together as a couple, and they're establishing routines, traditions that sort of shape their orientation towards adulthood in ways that I think are interesting. There is a greater risk of divorce, so if you get married particularly in, in obviously your teens and your early 20s especially. And so that's something to, to be attentive to. So there's like this, in theory, sweet spot in your 20s where you might be happier 
but still beat the likely to get divorced? So in terms of, I mean, if you're kind of talking about the sweet spot where kind of your odds of being happier or higher and your odds of being divorced are lower, it's sort of mid to late 20s. But again, it's important to acknowledge that the most stable marriages are sort of formed in the late 20s and early 30s. And the happiest marriages are formed in the mid-20s. And it's just because these are two different outcomes. And I think they're, the risk for getting married younger is that people are less mature and, you know, they're less likely to kind of know who they are and where they're headed. And that, I think, conditions in part their odds of divorce. At the same time, because the folks who are in their mid-20s are relatively younger, I think they're more likely to form a more, in some ways, marriage and family-centered lifestyle together compared mm-hmm. to, their, to their peers who married later in life. And you talked about the individual benefits of their happiness and less likely to be depressed. And I mean, very real topics that we see a lot of studies about millennials address. What are some of the more societal benefits for people entering marriage? I read a lot about how declining fertility rates are affecting the economy and what that could mean. So obviously one consequence of marrying later is that people tend to have kids later in life and have fewer kids. So that's certainly part of the story is that delays in marriage do translate into declines in fertility and declines later on in population typically. I think it's also the case too that when it comes to marriage that men tend to become more responsible in the wake of marrying. And so, you know, if you've got lots of guys who are married in a community, it's going to, I think, generally speaking, be you know, a safer place. There are going to be more folks at the PTA meetings in the local schools. You know, it's going to just sort of shape the character of the community in ways that are generally positive. For the lots of guys who are not married, they're more likely to be getting into trouble. They're more likely to be using substances, et cetera, more crime, you know. So, and that kind of point has been largely overlooked too. So George Akerlof was an economist at both Brookings and Berkeley. The husband of Janet Yellen, who just stepped down as Fed chair, has done work on the decline of marriage among working class and poor men in the 70s and how that was part and parcel of the uptick we saw then in substance use and also criminal activity. So that's a controversial (laughs) argument, but I think it's one that makes sense to me and one we don't talk about that much today. Yeah, I I have not heard much about marriage and being a public safety deterrent, but I imagine that If you talk to police departments or studies, you think about communities where there are stable families that are involved and connected and involved in neighborhood watch. Mm -hmm. The guess would be that there probably are lower crime rates. No, it's Robert Sampson at Harvard has, has shown that there's a strong association between neighborhood family structure and criminal activity and violence. And also he's shown at the individual level that guys who get married are more likely to desist from future criminal activity as well. So I do think that marriage is a stabilizing force in men's lives and that has implications for communities as well. Brad, one of our journalists is reading Ta-Nehisi Coates right now, and someone we've talked about maybe pulling into the faith angle orbit if we can. And, and, you know, I'm just curious if there are any particular insights about the black community right now in particular as the months leading up to the election unfold that are worth drawing out. Are, are there distinct surprises that you've learned about and observed when it comes to black males left behind, when it comes to work rates, or when it comes to agency and engagement with, you know, military and other structures that, that are worth noting here? Yeah. And one of the things that I think, you know, really in the last decade, for obvious reasons, there's been a lot of focus from President Obama to the media to other in the wake of obviously events in Baltimore, for instance, and elsewhere, there's been a lot of concern about sort of the state of black men in America. And I think there are obvious reasons to be concerned on some fronts, but it's important to recognize in all of this that many 
black men are doing comparatively well. So like the share of black men who are poor fell from 41% in 1960 to 18% in 2016. The share of black men who are in the middle class or higher rose from 38% in 1960 to 57% in 2016. So I think it's important to recognize that most black men are in the middle class or upper class. And I think we often lose sight of that fact. And that for black men, as for many men, things like marriage, education, work, lift their economic fortunes. We also see in my work that attending church as a young man was linked to better outcomes later in life for black men, economically speaking. And being a part of the military was also, particularly for black men, a kind of a, a vehicle for upward mobility and economic success. The other thing about the U.S. military is it's the one place in America where there is really no discernible difference in marriage between black men and white men. So, you know, and I think actually this speaks to both kind of a liberal and a conservative perspective. From the liberal, I think, perspective, what you have is, you know, lots of employment security, decent salaries, you know, good housing, free health care, all that kind of stuff. But I think progressives would want to talk about. From the conservative side, you would sort of also, I think, have to acknowledge that military bases tend to be pretty marriage and family friendly. And, you know, there are some exceptions within guys who are in the enlisted. But also for, for the U.S. military, you can't get access to housing and health care benefits if you're the partner of someone unless you're married to them. So there is a very clear preference for marriage when it comes to relationships in the U.S. military. So anyways, I'm just saying it's there are obviously a lot of things to be concerned about when it comes to race in America. But I think the military is one example of a place where there's a lot of good things happening for African-Americans. And again, what we see when it comes to marriage in particular is there's no racial divide, which I think is a good thing. In terms of being able to receive certain benefits, not that that alone would be a motivator, but I think that speaks to a question I had earlier about the possibility that some people enter into marriage for reasons other than deeply held convictions. One could argue that our economy in so many ways is set up to benefit people who have partners opposed to people who are single when it may come to home ownership or just living the life that having two incomes may require. That's true in, in some important respects, particularly I think for middle and upper class Americans. I think what we're seeing among working class Americans, though, is that when it comes to some key benefits, key programs like Medicaid, for instance, that there's a penalty that follows if you've got kids from marrying and reporting your total income versus just living together and often having the mom report her income. So I was talking to a couple in Virginia just a, a few weeks ago, and they were together. They had two kids. You know, he's got a decent job as an IT tech. But it was clear to me as I was talking to them that they weren't married. So I was trying to kind of figure that out, you know. And it came out that they'd actually they'd sat down at the kitchen table and just crunched the numbers. And their two daughters are on Medicaid. And, you know, they couldn't afford to pay for private health insurance. And so were they to get married, they would lose access to Medicaid in, in Virginia. So I think there are some parts of our economy where, well, there's a penalty, financial penalty that people are paying for marriage. And that's a problem and one that we should try to figure out how to address. I think we see that often in communities with people of color and from the outside looking in and trying to determine family stability, people often look at marriage rates, which is understandable. But 
I wonder how often are people entertaining the idea of the presence of a father in the life of a kid despite not being married. Being in a single-parent home doesn't only mean, always mean, should I say, that there's only one parent involved in the life of the child, especially in communities of color. Does the research support that? I see that anecdotally. So the research tells us that, interesting enough, in each of the categories of like a residential fathered category and a non-residential fathered category, that actually African-American dads are, are more involved. Although there's been some confusion in the media about that, it doesn't mean that overall African-American dads are more involved. Because there are many more African-American dads who are non-residential, overall, that's not the case that they are more involved on the whole. But then they're unique categories, they are more involved. And so, yeah, there are plenty of obviously African-American dads, for instance, who are not living with the mother of the kids, who are seeing their kids, spending time with their kids and supporting their kids. So that's certainly part of the research, as long as that relationship is a good one. And particularly if the, the mom, and the dad have a decent relationship that sort of works, that's also you know good for the kids. Brad, you've been doing this just about as long as Eugene's been a journalist, I think, which is great, sort of amazing, really, when you get tired two decades into compiling a lot of data and statistics about about marriage trends, marriage rates, the implications for economics and well-being. Is there anything that keeps you going as we round out this conversation? I think, you know, sort of seeing the importance of a stable marriage in my own kids' lives is certainly a factor in my life in terms of seeing how important that is for my kids. But also, I think it's important to recognize that it's not all bad news. You know, so we are seeing for, for dads who are in the picture, especially in the household, an increase in paternal involvement. We have seen a, a modest uptick, as I mentioned before, in the share of kids who are being born into married families and, and being raised today in married families. So I think it's important to sort of recognize that there are, there are some pieces of good news to, to be aware of and, and to work to hopefully build on as we go forward. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Eugene. Okay. Thanks, Josh, for organizing this. Thanks for the good questions, Eugene. If you liked today's episode, tell a friend and keep sending recommendations for the religion scholars, experts, and top journalists you'd like us to invite in. Thanks for listening.